0: Hey there. We've got another guest episode for you today, and it's another follow up to our piece on soil carbon. We had spoken about how carbon enters and exits the soil thanks to plants and soil microbes, respectively, and how both are essential to healthy soil ecosystems. But since we were focused on carbon and carbon credits, we didn't have time to get into all the fascinating details of those little critters, all that life teeming under our feet. Of course, there are bacteria and fungi, but also a whole host of tiny animals, also known as mesofauna. So today, with the help of our friends Anja Krieger and Matthias Rielig, we invite you on a microscopic safari. This is Life in the Soil.
1: If you could choose to be one soil organism, which one would you want to be and why? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, yeah, that's a very interesting question. Uh, but I have a very very uh, uh, clear answer. I, I would definitely be a kalembolin. It's a very small, insect-like animal. It's about sort of just about uh, visible to the naked eye.
3: I would like to be a nematode. <laughs> and I think um, I would like to be my favorite nematode, which is dominant in the soils of Antarctica. And the reason is that nematode is so tough and it's very beautiful, I think.
4: So it is full with lives, full with variety of lives. So I would choose many characters depending on the day, depending on my mood.
5: Man, I just love them all.
4: In my opinion, all these organisms are useful one way or another. We can't say which is good, which is bad.
1: Welcome to Life in the Soil, a podcast by the Plant, Fungal and Soil Ecology Lab at Freie Universität Berlin. I'm Anja Krieger, your host. In the first two episodes, we explored the habitat beneath our feet and visited the world of fungi. Now we want to take you on an underground safari to meet some of the other characters that live in this hidden jungle. We want some real experts as your tour guides, the soil biologists who study these little creatures. So hop onto our tiny Jeep and come along. And as always, I'm joined by my co-producer, soil biologist Matthias Rillich. Matthias, there's this huge and diverse community living in the soil. Maybe you can take us from the ones that most of us will know like an earthworm down to the very very tiny.
6: Yeah, it goes from earthworms that you can hold in your hand depending on if you like that or not <laughs> all the way to the tiniest of critters like uh, bacteria and archaea that are you know a few cubic micrometers. So super super tiny, you know. I mean I mean a millimeter, you know what that is? It's like this one mark on your ruler and then a thousand times smaller than that. That's really what you're talking about in terms of the microbes that are the vast majority of the organisms that live down there. I mean, in one gram of soil, you can have 10 to the eight bacteria. So that's a one with eight zeros zeros—an unimaginable number. And fungi, <laughs> we give fungi often in, in meters because they are lines. So in one gram of soil, and one gram is really not very much as much as you can hold between your two fingers. (laughs) So in one gram of soil, you can have, you know, up to 40 meters or or up to sometimes even 100 meters of hyphae. It's only possible because they're so tiny. So you can fit a lot of them in even the tiniest crumb of soil. And then everything in between, you know, protists. You have um, microarthropods, so collembola and mites, and nematodes, enchytraeids—all the crazy critters. I mean, it's incredibly diverse. And in the very top of the soil, you also have algae. You know, but because there is no light down there, um, they sort of uh, very quickly fade away. But um, that is a, an incredible diversity that's all in there in the soil, all interacting with each other, all forming part of the food web, which is one way to conceptualize and simplify the incredible diversity that's in the soil.
1: I heard that it's one of the most complicated that that exists. Who eats whom in the soil and, and why does that matter to us?
6: Yeah, I think it is one of the longest food chains of um, any food web anywhere you can imagine life in the soil being organized into this trophic level so at the base you have bacteria and fungi and then already there it separates because some organisms would prefer to eat on fungi for example collembola, certain nematodes and then other organisms would prefer to eat bacteria for example protists also certain nematodes, not so much microarthropods. And so you have these two what are called energy channels by some people that are basically flows of matter, of carbon, through this food web, of course, as an abstraction. And in the end, so it goes to various levels, you know, nematodes, different nematodes, predatory nematodes that eat other nematodes, mites that eat other organisms. And then it goes to the top, the top level, the top predator is predatory mites. And so you can, you can visualize each of these levels as a trophic level. And having omnivory in the food web means that organisms don't adhere to this strict ordering of trophic levels, but will feed across trophic levels. It's been shown to be very important for stability. But really, this food web is, is incredible, and it doesn't get that much attention. Like in ecology textbooks, you will not find it. You will find the food web, you know, like grass, cow tiger but you don't see the you don't see the one of the most amazing food webs on earth and we should care about that food web because this is how our litter gets recycled and how nutrients are being unlocked for use by plants so the entirety of the food web basically one of the functions that it has uh, from our perspective of the ecosystem <laughs> of course this is not some is not a service that the food web does this is just what comes out in the end of all these feeding interactions is nutrients are being transformed from an organic form to an inorganic form. It's called mineralization and these nutrients are then available for plants to take up. Otherwise we would, um, you know, drown in a heap of trash everywhere because nothing gets recycled.
1: You've probably seen some of the bigger animals that live in soil. The earthworms, centipedes, ants, termites or the beetles. But what about collembola, mites or bacteria? Some of these other organisms Matthias just mentioned. I have to admit, when he told me their names, I could not really picture them. I guess they're as different from each other as a fish is from a cat or a dog. But it's not like everybody's posting cute pictures of them on social media. They're just too small and not very fluffy. To appreciate them, we need to zoom in closer and open our hearts to a whole new world of life. Like nematodes. If you have never heard about them, these tiny worms are one of the most abundant groups of microfauna in the soil. I had no clue, but nematodes are everywhere, even in the most unlikely of places. Such as the dry valleys of Antarctica. And
3: that's a large area that is just like time stopped. And there's lots of soil, but no plants and no flying around bugs. Or It it looks like Mars. It looks like nothing would be alive.
1: This is Diana Wall, a soil ecologist at Colorado State University. She has traveled to one of the most far off places in search of life in the soil. Now, I always thought of Antarctica to be completely covered in snow. But in fact, there are these snow-free valleys. The temperatures there are way below freezing. The landscape is dry and barren, just gray rubble and sand. And yet, a few organisms have evolved strategies to cope and make this uninviting place their home. And on top of that simple food web sits a microscopic worm, called Scott Nema.
3: What is really cool
1: about it is
3: its survival. The way it survives those Antarctic harsh winters is by going into anhydrobiosis, this life without water, and it shuts down its metabolism. And it's like the fountain of youth, you know? Okay, I'm shutting everything down. I'm hibernating like a bear. My metabolism isn't going. When we get the, the Antarctic summer, which is about six weeks, and conditions are better and a little warmer, and I have a little water, I will rehydrate and move through soil particles and see what's there and what's different. And I will find my bacteria and my food. And then I'll go back to anhydrobiosis when the weather gets better. That way you live forever. This nematode has all these genes to help it turn on, turn off in case there is change in the environment. And I think that that is really remarkable.
1: Other nematodes can do that too. Researchers were able to revive some of these tiny worms after decades of the state of suspended animation. Nematodes make up a lot of the biomass in soil, and they also live in other places. Different kinds of roundworms can be found in the oceans, in rivers, in great depth, and on high mountains. Over a hundred years ago, a wise nematologist called Nathan Cobb beautifully imagined how the Earth would look like with nothing but nematodes.
7: If all the matter in the universe, except the nematodes, were swept away, our world would still be dimly recognizable. And if as disembodied spirits we could then investigate it, we should find its mountains, hills, valleys, rivers, lakes, and oceans represented by a film of nematodes. The location of towns would be decipherable, since for every massing of human beings, there would be a corresponding massing of certain nematodes. Trees would still stand in ghostly rows, representing our streets and highways. The location of the various plants and animals would still be decipherable. And had we sufficient knowledge, in many cases, even their species could be determined by an examination of their erstwhile nematode parasites.
1: To really see a nematode, you need a microscope. They're tiny tubes, basically, just as small as your eyelash. And they're transparent, so you can see all of their body parts. Scientists are able to tell them apart based on their mouthpieces, Diana told me.
3: There'll be some that have these stylets, like a hypodermic needle, that penetrate a plant root. But then there's going to be a bunch of others that have a a different kind of morphology, And they kind of suck in bacteria and then there are ones that have a tiny little style that they can feed on fungi and there's some that have a little tooth and they're predators and they feed on other nematodes and other
1: tardigrades yeah those cute little water bears which can also survive in pretty extreme conditions that is if they don't meet one of those hungry little worms in the soil so nematodes have many different tastes and each has their own set of tools to satisfy its appetite And as always in nature, it's not only about eating, it's also about being eaten. Nematodes are a favorite food of mites, for example, and even fungi sometimes hunt them. These little worms are super significant for the soil food web. But back when Diana started studying them, few people knew nematodes. And those who did often saw them as quote-unquote problem worms because they were also pretty successful parasites of plants and animals.
3: You know, my uncle who was a farmer knew about nematodes, but he was the only person in my family who knew why I was studying nematodes and he also would just say, "Oh, they cause a lot of disease in my, you know, my crop of tomatoes or whatever." And, and so it was it was kind of like, you know, I was on one end of learning about the science and who they were and what they did and how they affected the metabolism of plants and then at the other end was my uncle who was
1: just like oh kill them all
3: (laughs) you know they're they're really taking care of my crops in a bad way and then i can't sell the crop
1: well as you know that didn't stop diana she was already on a mission to lobby for the little creatures in the soil when i would go to meetings ecology meetings or Um, you know, get with other
3: disciplines, they would say, nematodes? Oh, there must be two talks here on nematodes. So I thought they were disrespecting nematodes, and I got very involved in, oh, well look, the people who talk about mites, you know, microarthropods, they also find that people aren't that interested. And so it seemed like every creature in the soil was being disrespected, or maybe just there wasn't enough knowledge to consider it as part of global biodiversity. And that, that really got me going on, we need to consider all the biodiversity in soil and what it does for us.
2: The activities of those organisms are what provides the nutrients on which the growth of plants depends, They are the activities which determine, for example, how much carbon is stored or released from the soil. They are the activities that determine whether nutrients are leached from the soils into waterways or whether they're retained within the soil matrix or whether they're released to the atmosphere as greenhouse gases.
1: Another scientist who is raising attention for the biodiversity in soils is Richard Bartlett. He's a professor of ecology at the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom.
2: So all the biogeochemical transformations that actually occur within the soil, the cycling of carbon, the cycling of phosphorus, the cycling of nitrogen, depend upon those trophic interactions.
1: Richard has written this great book called Earth Matters that explores the significance of soil for our civilization. He's also studied some of the tiny organisms in great detail. His favourite is a particular springtail, an animal that gets its name from its ability to jump. They can go so high, it would be like one of us jumping over the Eiffel Tower. We've already mentioned their scientific name, Collembola.
2: It's a very small, insect-like animal. It's about sort of just about uh, visible to the naked eye and it's quite dominant in the soil, so you can get something like 100,000 of them within a meter square, all within the surface soil. And and I I guess I I always like it because it's quite a charismatic organism. Um, It's one of the few animals in the soil that you can actually see.
1: Springtails can be colourful and really cute. While they don't get quite as much attention as cats and dogs, you can actually find some really adorable pictures of them on social media. For example, the amazing images of Andy Murray, who runs a website called chaosofdelight.org. On his page, there's pictures of a springtail family called Onychuridae. That's the family that Richard's favorite springtail belongs to, the one he has studied for his PhD back in the early 90s.
2: So I, I used to do experiments where I presented them with different fungi and explored which ones they preferred. And uh, it's quite, quite amusing because I, I actually did these experiments under my bed in, in my house. So I, I spent a lot of time checking every six hours or so the actual, uh, where these little animals had gone, which fungi they were preferring. So I didn't just live with them in my work environment. I also lived with them in my home.
1: The relationship between some soil scientists and the objects of their study can be pretty close. It turned out that Richard's little springtails had a very diverse diet. They ate from the mycelia of seven species of fungi in the British grasslands. And of course, they preferred some fungi over others, just like you and me would. Thanks to researchers like Richard, science is gaining more and more insights into the soil food web. The importance of this web can't be overstated. An intact soil food web leads to a healthy soil that in turn provides the basis for human food production. If you could be one organism in the soil, which one would you want to be and why? (laughs) Um, uh,
4: That's a difficult question for a soil ecologist because soil is full with lives, full with variety of lives. So I would choose many characters depending on the day, depending on my mood.
1: Madi Takur is an assistant professor at the University of Bern in Switzerland.
4: But if I have to pick one, I will go with a predator, which I am always fascinated by. This is a group called predatory mites. And I'm always fascinated by them because they, I call them wolves of the soil, you know, because they do, they do solitary hunting, they also do pack hunting. And they just fascinate me. And their ecology is incredible with the kind of uh, aggressive feeding they do in the soil, attacking almost something which is three times bigger than it. It will still attack it. So, yeah, I think if you, if you give me the, the choice of picking one group of organism, it would be predatory mites.
1: In our previous episode, we looked at these friendly interactions of mycorrhizal fungi with plants. But soil can also be a pretty vicious jungle. These predatory mites are like the wolves of the ecosystem. They can look vicious, but they're still very tiny. Predatory mites hunt all the other organisms we've mentioned so far, especially the tasty soft nematode worms and springtails. But in case there's nothing else, predatory mites can also hunt other mites, like the oribetid or moss mites. It's a lot of effort, though, because mites know how to defend themselves.
8: On the one side, because they are really very heavily sclerotized, and they, they do have special devices for, for example, to hide their legs, uh, so no, no predator can kind of uh, attack their legs. And then they also have poison glands. So if any predator comes, they, uh, they poison them.
1: Stefan Scheu is a soil ecologist working at the University of Göttingen in Germany. He's fascinated by orobated mites, but also many other species in the soil.
8: When you once really are educated and, and kind of guided into that below-ground system, I think you can't resist that it gets really fascinating.
1: Stefan's favorite mites, the moss mites, look a little bit like beetles. You can find them in the leaf litter and the topsoil, especially in forests. There, they break down the organic matter and nibble on some fungi. But how do soil biologists even know what all these tiny animals feed on? Like, you can't really shrink yourself and hang out behind a soil crumb to see what's happening.
8: Basically, you are what you eat in that respect that the, the lipids you ingest are ending up in your own lipid body without major changes. So if we analyze the lipid composition of your fat body, uh, we can trace the origin of these lipids.
1: Lipid analysis is just one of the methods scientists use to better understand the tangled food web of the soil. But what's clear is that at the base of it, there's one major resource. And that's the detritus, the dead stuff, that quote-unquote smoothie of organic matter. We don't yet understand why or how, but the biodiversity in soil is huge. And that gives us a lot of choices to imagine what it would be like to live in there. Madi described it perfectly. I think that's,
4: you know, the, the beauty of being a soil ecologist, that if you really want to understand how the biology in soil works, there is so much options for you to, to pick from. But on the other hand, you also want to have the overall view of, you know, what is happening. So, on a day where you want to have a lazy day, you would probably pick an animal like earthworm, which is slow, which is, you know, moving around. Uh, When there is a rain, you start to become more active, but on other days, you are usually not as active as a predatory mite, for example. Some other days you would like to be probably a columbola, and columbola is so much fun to be because you can jump. <laughs> you can jump like crazy if you're a columbola. Or, or why not sometimes even become a microorganisms, which really are the, the lifeblood of soil.
1: From earthworms to springtails to fungi and bacteria, soil is a living system. It's not about individual organisms, it's about the way they all interact.
5: And I think what's exciting is this, like, sense of community, which I also am very excited about among humans.
1: Kate Scow is a soil microbial ecologist. She works at the University of California, Davis, in the Department of Land, Air and Water Resources.
5: It's what you gain by being in the community, is is, is what are all the different kinds of things that you can do. For example, somebody can break down a really complex, like a pollutant, into simpler form that then you can use, right? And then help keep it degrading, keep it going along the way. There's a lot of that kind of mutualistic behavior that is really exciting about being in communities.
1: Soil bacteria are often the most abundant group of microorganisms in the soil. They're not only everywhere, they're also able to consume almost everything. Every living being needs a food source and something to breathe with. So we humans, for example, break down glucose from sugars in our bodies and breathe in oxygen.
5: But what's incredible about bacteria is they can swap out that glucose for a whole bunch of different kinds of other compounds.
1: So they can use metals, iron and manganese, sulfur, hydrogen, gas, organic fats and proteins, but also pollutants like oil, gasoline or organic solvents. And then if we look at the other side, bacteria can also swap out oxygen for all kinds of other compounds.
5: So they can breathe with like nitrate or they can breathe with an oxidized form of iron or they can breathe with sulfate or CO2.
1: That gives bacteria an amazing capacity to survive in many different conditions. Like we talked about in episode one, they can inhabit the insides of soil aggregates even if there is no oxygen. And because the conditions in soil can change rapidly from one corner to the next, there's many different niches for different kinds of bacteria to inhabit. That is immensely important for the entire system.
5: Microbes are the eye of the needle through which carbon flows from like plant residues into stabilized soil organic matter. They are the agents. They are the ones that are involved. And so there's a lot of capacity to bring some of the CO2 in the atmosphere down into the soil by by managing the microbes.
1: And the bacteria play a big role in this microbial action. They process the bodies of the previous generation, returning the nutrients that these bodies had borrowed for a while back to the system. They're like our natural waste managers. It's like the microbiome in our gut helps us digest our food.
5: Don't think about microbiomes as only the organisms. But it also encompasses their theater of activity. It's them, but it's all the things that they do.
1: To see them in action isn't easy. Bacteria are even tinier than nematodes or fungi. You can extract some DNA and see who's in there, dead or alive. You can offer up different conditions in a petri dish and see who's reacting. But you can't really experience life as a microbe to really witness their role in the whole system.
5: There's a movie about a trip into a human body where they shrank down really small and then roamed around the body. I mean, I would love to do that in the soil. And the thing is, I would have to be changing scale all the time I'd have to go down to like a micron and then i'd have to blow up to 50 microns and then maybe go down to 0.2 you know to look at the different processes going on i mean that would be my dream and that's not even i mean i don't know if there's any technology that can shrink me down to to do that so i can be chased by you know say a nematode or hide in the small pore You know, next to another shivering little bacterium that's like waiting for the predator to go by, or you know, be stuck onto cation exchange. You know, assuming I'm positively charged, and I, you know, I've got to pull myself off of that soil particle to be able to keep moving. And you know, I mean, that's my that's my dream, or I'd like to make a film about it.
1: So the soil food web is this complicated, messy, but also finely tuned system, the circus of life, where all these different organisms live and feed. And in the process of that, they produce waste products that then can be used by other organisms and plants again. Taken altogether, the action of life in the soil determines how well plants can grow and how much of the carbon dioxide they catch from the air is stored underground. A healthy soil community also provides plants with water and nutrients. And on a global scale, soil impacts the entire earth system. Basically, all nutrient cycles we and other species depend on are born in the soil, with only a few exceptions. And they are run by the living organisms, these tiny chemists of the soil.
6: Really, all of these organisms just earn a living in their own specific way that, you know, to us fits together into what appears like a cycle, like a nutrient cycle, like the nitrogen cycle, but also the phosphorus cycle and of course the carbon cycle. Those are all cycles and they're driven very much by soil organisms. And of course the soil is fed in the end with carbon via photosynthesis from the plant, then takes this carbon out of the atmosphere and pumps it below ground, of course, primarily to its roots. But because of all the organisms that sit in the roots, it gets quickly translocated into the soil. And of course, roots are not tight systems. The roots are constantly leaky. They're, they're leaking carbon by their very construction into the soil. Uh, this is a, a huge amount of carbon that's input into soil. Anywhere from four to 70% of the carbon that's fixed in photosynthesis. So huge. This is the engine that drives that, that soil. And of course, then in the end, when plants die, they are litter uh, above ground and below ground. Of course we only see the above ground litter, the leaves that fall down in the fall, but this this also happens below ground. You just don't see it. Uh, that is also another pathway of carbon input. And all of this drives that, that motor in, in the soil that that feeds that entire food web because the basis of the soil food web is actually dead organic matter, primarily. This is why why it's called a detrital food web, so based on detritus. So it's really quite different from all the food webs that you may have generally heard of and that are usually depicted in ecology textbooks because the beginning of that food web is dead stuff on which then bacteria and fungi grow and then all the rest. But the driving force of all of that is plant growth.
1: So let's do the elevator pitch. If you met a billionaire or a millionaire, let's say, and you had the chance to convince them that they would invest a substantial amount of money into soil biodiversity, what would you tell them?
6: Well, first of all, get me into that elevator. (laughs) Yeah, Um, there's plenty of reasons to care about soil biodiversity. Biodiversity in its own right, maybe uh, first and foremost, it's life, and we should care about it just because it's there irrespective of what it does for us, what perceived, quote unquote, services it may provide to us. And um, I guess if I had a billionaire there, hmm, I wonder. So, I mean, I would probably tell him that soil biodiversity in its entirety is like an army of chemical factories. There's always new reports on a new class of antibiotics being uh, discovered from soil organisms. I mean, this is not by chance. It's because the diversity is just so high. It's because you have this reservoir of biodiversity in there. And of course, just almost by chance alone, there's going to be something in there that produces something of interest. So it could be something that makes plants grow better, that protects plants uh, from some adverse impacts of the environment. So it's just that you could... You could think of it as, a, as also a reservoir of chemical compounds. Um, that's a very utilitarian view of things. I prefer more the uh, valuing them for the life that they are. And to learn from it, understand how it works, why it's all there, how it interacts, what are the networks. I mean, that, that is why I would value biodiversity in its own right.
1: This was episode three of Life in the Soil with Matthias Rillig and me, Anja Krieger. Huge thanks to our guests Diana Wall, Richard Bartgett, Stefan Scheu, Madi Taku and Kate Skau, to the Biodiversa Network, which funds our series, and to you for listening. If you enjoy our series, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. Diana and Richard are founding members of the Global Soil Biodiversity Initiative. They were among the 300 scientists who contributed to the United Nations report on the global state of soil biodiversity. Together with the European Commission, the GSBI has also published a beautiful global soil biodiversity atlas, which you can order or download for free. This is a Rillich Lab production. Stefanie Maas and Moises Sosa Hernandez contributed as story consultants to this episode. The theme music is by Sunfish Moonlight, additional music and sound by Blue Dot Sessions and Sascha Spachal. and cover art by Maren von Stockhausen. The quote on nematodes was read by Kevin Caner's, host of The Elephant, my favorite climate podcast. In the next episode, we're taking a deeper look into how soil scientists are exploring the underground. So stay tuned and see you soon.
0: Find the rest of life in the soil